Many people said to me, Fanola, you're so brave leaving the HSC. But you know yourself when you just have to do something, you just have to do it. And if you don't do it, you yeah. suffer because you're not living your truth. I've learned that about myself. I need to listen to that voice inside. That's Dr. Judy Meehan, clinical psychologist, strategic interventionist coach, parent guide and imperfect mum. She's been working with children, parents and families for the last 20 plus years and has developed a pathway for parenting, which starts with us learning how to parent ourselves first. She calls it coming home to ourselves. As an imperfect mum myself, I thought it would be interesting to add this dimension to the Your Truth Shared podcast. We are not just what we do, we are parents, partners, siblings, sons and daughters and friends too. I'm Fanola Howard, intuitive marketer, your host and founder of How Great Marketing Works. I believe that every business has a story to tell because that's how the market decides whether to buy or not. And your story has to resonate with who you are and with the people you want to serve. And this podcast is about helping you reach the market in a way that feels right to you. So if you're an entrepreneur with a dream you want to make real, then this is the podcast for you because great marketing is your truth shared. I felt that it was time to talk a little bit about parenting because as entrepreneurs, we also have to remember that there are many other parts to our lives as well. And those parts of our lives impact everything we do. And you'll often hear people talking about work-life balance or now the lovely buzzword of harmony coming into uh, discussions of late. But I suppose I just want to acknowledge that parenting is a really strong part of the journey. It impacts both positively and negatively. It's part of our fuller selves. So I wanted to introduce you today to this wonderful, wonderful person <laughs> called Dr. Julie Meehan, who is a clinical psychologist, strategic interventionist coach and a lovely parent. And I love uh, Dr. Julie's approach. We worked together last year and she goes a little bit deeper and quite empowering and let me stop talking about her, actually, and let's talk to her ourselves here. So hi, Julie. Hi, Fanola. How are you doing? It's lovely to have you here. Thank you. It's lovely to be with you. Cool. So what I thought I'd start with was you have worked for the Irish Health Service Executive um, for many, many years, and you recently made the decision because you're also an entrepreneur. This is why you're here. You are someone who uh, understands about parenting, you're a parent yourself, you're a clinical psychologist, all of these amazing things. But you're also an entrepreneur. And I just thought this is a beautiful marriage for discussion on this podcast. So you started by working and you've worked for so long for the Irish Health Service Executive. And then you made a choice to actually go out on your own. And I'd love to maybe you could share with us that story. So, yeah, it's it's very interesting um, in terms of my training as a clinical psychologist, the way it works, because people may not be that familiar with it. They're probably more familiar with, say, medical training. But when you train to be a psychologist, you first of all do your primary degree in psychology, which actually doesn't qualify you to be a practicing psychologist per se. So you do three wow. to four years of your primary degree, and then you need to go on 
if you want to do, if you want to get into the therapeutic side of things and you choose to be a clinical psychologist or a counseling psychologist or even an educational psychologist, you have to get on the ground experience that you seek yourself. It's totally unsupported. And you really are encouraged to do a master's, which is usually you have to self-fund. And if you tick all the right boxes, then you may get into a, a doctoral training program in one of those disciplines. Yeah. And for clinical psychology in this country, I mean, we're lucky in that it's, it's, it is funded by the government, it's funded by the HSC, which is wonderful in many ways, and I'm very grateful for it. But you are trained as a HSE psychologist rather than being seen for being able to embrace the broad spectrum of being a clinical psychologist. So there's a very HSE slant to it. And while I appreciate that, why that might be, I've, I always struggled with that. What does that mean, the HSE slant? What does it mean? It means that you're being trained to work um, in the HSE for the HSE and I suppose take on the mantle of working in a massive organisation such as the health service executive, which has many benefits to it, but it also, you know, there's a shadow side, a big shadow side, which I think we're all aware of. I mean, even from an operational point of view, yeah. it's so heavily you know, structured in ter terms of management. And there's a huge disconnect between management and what's happening on the ground with the clinicians, in my experience. Does that mean you, you miss the depth of understanding or the freedom to really explore solutions for clients or if you can explain? Yeah, it's I suppose it's a bit of both in that you know, there is that system of managed care so that, you know, they mm. have in the United States and understandably the health service needs to operate with that structure. However, it can be very limiting and especially in psychology. Sometimes you need to work with a client or a group of clients for a very long time and that doesn't seem to fit mm. any particular model. Um, and that's very difficult. Yeah. So as a psychologist and my colleagues, we'd be constantly trying to justify our work and why it may take us yeah. 20 or 30 sessions with the client versus five or 10 with maybe another allied health profession. Okay. And that's exhausting because you're advocating for the client, yeah. you're advocating for your discipline. And also there was a limited scope in the modalities we could use. And again, I understand why in terms of evidence base, and I'm very much for evidence base, but it just very much felt like you couldn't bring yourself, your true self um, to the work. And I felt like my wings were clipped. And, you know, you mentioned me being an entrepreneur and, you know, I'm only beginning to identify with myself as an entrepreneur, but I've always had that flair in me from very young. I come from a family of entrepreneurs. Mm. So that was always there to, you know, burning, I think, alongside um, my time in the HSC. So 
So does this journey to entrepreneurship give you freedom now? Yeah, it's like I always knew I was going to do what I've done. Um, And I feel like I didn't really have a choice in it, Fanola. It was just something that I needed to respond to in myself. I think many of us feel like that. Yeah. Yeah. The club, the entrepreneurial club. Yeah, exactly. And the Quakers have a lovely expression, if I if I can just get it right. It's listening to the still, quiet voice inside. Or the still, small voice. And it's always been there. So how's it been? So I left the HSE um, on the 4th of July, <laughs> Independence Day, um, four years ago. So it's been really interesting. It, I set up in private practice as a clinical psychologist and very quickly got very busy. Um, and yeah. in many ways, that was quite easy. I didn't particularly need to market myself. Um, it just happened through word yeah. of mouth. And actually, there was a lot of flow to it. It was last year when I decided to take a slightly different turn and work with parents only, which is a real passion of mine. Yeah. That I felt I needed to to stop, take stock and, you know, really step into the entrepreneurial role of bringing in a lot of creativity into what I was doing and the models I could use in terms of how I'm offering service. And I think that's really what that drive was inside me as well, to bring in that creativity. Um, so yeah. it's, it's, it's great. And I, I don't think I give up the freedom, even though sometimes I wish I was back in the safety of, of a permanent pensionable job. Mm. Um, the small, mm. the still small, quiet voice is there saying, keep going, keep going. And I just love being able to bring more of myself. I think we all want that, whether we're self-employed or working for large organizations, we want to bring all of ourselves because we have so much, you know, we have so many different life experiences that add layers and depth that help us serve better. Absolutely. And you know, I call myself, as you know, an imperfect parent. Yeah, I love it. And that's so important because, you know, when you're trained as a clinical psychologist, there is this approach where, you know, you stay very boundaried, which is very important, but you do not disclose many aspects of yourself. Um, that has never felt natural mm. to me. And for me, I mm. feel that bringing that aspect to myself, which we all have, whether we're a parent or not, which is our inherent imperfection, is vital, especially nowadays mm. where so many of us are living in uh, trying to attain this curated lifestyle, which is absolutely impossible and is causing a lot of yeah. suffering in my mind. I, I love how you in your on your website, you describe yourself as uh, the messiness of motherhood. And I think and I've always loved this because it gives us 
I have felt that it has given me permission to accept my own imperfectness as a parent. And I think having that permission is just so freeing, <laughs> you know. And that's the word, you know, that that freedom. And she's nodding. <laughs> <laughs> the validation. What I'd love, your approach is really interesting because you chose to move away from working with the the children or young adults that you had been working with and you're choosing to work primarily with parents. And what I wanted you to share with everybody was this idea of how we, an approach being that how we learn how to reparent ourselves and then come home to ourselves. Will you share with us a little bit about that? Yeah, so it, it ties into the phrase, the messiness of motherhood, because we know from attachment research, so the research of how an infant forms attachment to their caregiver, their primary caregiver, um, we know that that actually what takes place is for the most optimal circumstances for an infant and a primary caregiver to form what we call a secure attachment is actually based on mm. a series of the child, the, the infant signaling that there's something that they need and the caregiver attempting yeah. to attune to their needs. And anybody who's a parent will know mm. that we can never get it right all the time. You know, you go through this list, is it this, is it that, mm. is it the nappy, are they hungry? So there's this dance between as a, as a parent or a caregiver around maybe getting it right, getting it wrong, and then seeking to get it right again. And that's actually how secure yeah. attachment is formed. So mm. an infant's brain, their mind, their sense of self and their sense of safety and security in the world all grow and are shaped from these first experiences. So mm. our experience of being human is actually at the very best shaped on this imperfect dance. And there's a psychologist called Ed Tronic who talks about that being messy. So relationships are inherently messy. Yeah. So that's why the messiness of motherhood really resonates for me for those reasons and because it can be just incredibly messy <laughs> being a parent and being a human. So yeah. in terms of parenting ourselves, the idea is then based on attachment that many of us may not have had optimal experiences as an infant and a young child in terms of how our needs were met or not met. So in order for us to feel safe and regulated, and have a sense of our needs being met and that we have this sense of being seen, felt and heard, which is what the infant is attempting to look for. We mm. need to find a way to be that parent to ourselves. So just to reiterate what you said, we need to find, I'll let you say it actually, please. Let's see if I can make it alive again, we need to be able to parent ourselves. We need to be able to recreate or create for the first time those circumstances 
where we can be that parent to ourselves. Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. And I'm sure it's a deeply emotional experience for for parents who work with you on this. So, yes, and it's it's not an easy process to yeah. undertake at times. And, you know, it's very important there for there to be a readiness and, and a willingness. And yeah. it's it's that reminder constantly that we do actually have the resources within us the resources to find mm. connection, to self-connect, to feel regulated so that we have emotional balance, that we feel grounded, that we feel okay in our bodies. And that mm. is so more difficult for some than it is for others, depending on their primary relationships in infancy, especially, and depending on whether they've also experienced other traumatic events in their life. So there needs to be an awful lot of understanding, empathy, patience, and time to do this. And most importantly, for yes. a parent needs to be able to, in time, give this to themselves and allow that for themselves. I also, can I presume, which is always dangerous, um, that it's in the context of not judging how we were parented, just accepting that every parent is imperfect. That's true. Absolutely. And, you know, I think there can be a, a phase in this, which is perfectly OK, where we do feel we, we may judge our parents, you know, for our own experiences, yeah. because perhaps that's the way we can get in touch with our own anger and our own sense of invalidation that we may have felt. Okay. And that's okay. That's absolutely 100% okay. The approach would be that we can see it and know it for what it is and give it safe expression. Yeah. It feels safe, Julie. Yeah. Okay. That's good to hear, Fanola. Well, how you're describing it, you know, that idea of accepting whatever comes, there may be judgment, there may be forgiveness, but it's all in an attempt to help us come home to ourselves, as you say. Yes, exactly. And that's just to, to expand on that, that's the state where we feel grounded, and okay in ourselves and connected, self-connected, where mm. we trust ourselves, where there's space yeah. to allow in time wisdom to arise from within. I also am sure that if we create a space to trust ourselves as parents, we possibly learn to trust ourselves for other things too. Exactly. And that's the benefit of, of being able yeah. to come home to ourselves. Whatever route we take, there's a universality to the experience. The other thing I just wanted to raise with you is you 
you are very clearly highly experienced, highly um, educated. You like to talk about the science of things, that things are evidence based, that there's a scientific approach. But I know from our conversations previously that there is uh, an awareness of something else, too, in the mix. Yes. Yeah. So this is like, you know, your the boundaries of, you know, I presume contributed to your move to being an entrepreneur. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah. So my uh, my logo is a butterfly. Um, there's many reasons for that, but one of them is because, yeah. well, butterfly means psyche in Greek and the root of the word psychology, but it also means soul. And modern day psychology yeah. is the study of the science of the mind and human behavior, which is very important. But my yeah. sense was that many aspects of it, not at all, not all of it, it was lacking soul. It was lacking the acknowledgement and the deep bow to to soul, to our pure essence. What we are when we come into the yeah. world before mind develops, before our first relationships even happen. What is that? What is that within us? And for me, mm. it felt absolutely vital for that to be a part of my work because it's part of who I am. And yeah. it's part of the healing process. It's also very brave of you. Yes. Well, you know, it's like, it's one of those things, like many people said to me, Fanola, it's, you're so brave leaving the HSC, but you know yourself when you just have to do something, you just have to do it. And if you don't do it, you yeah. suffer because you're not living your truth. Yeah. So in that yeah. way, it's, it, it just had to be done. And, you know, I, I've learned that. I've learned that about myself. So I need to listen to that voice inside. Well, the reason I say you're brave is because there are many professions that seem to have these restrictions on where that you can't color outside the lines and you can't evolve in some ways. And there is this you, you cannot speak like this. You cannot, you know, and and the word that so many people use, which is woo woo, you know? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and I'm saying you're brave because not everybody will allow this part of themselves to be revealed. And I think it's wonderful that, that you're, you're doing, doing it. Thank you. You know, I came across a beautiful quote a while ago and I'd love to read it to you about this, if that's Please. okay, Fanola. It's by Parker Palmer who runs the Centre for Courage and Renewal. And he talks about the human soul and he says, the human soul doesn't want to be advised or fixed or saved. It simply wants to be witnessed, to be seen, heard and championed exactly as it is. When we make that kind of deep bow to the soul of a suffering person, our respect reinforces the soul's healing resources. The only resources that can help the sufferer make it through. 
And to me, if we leave soul out, if we leave our own sense of connected presence out of what we are doing, whether it's in a therapy session, whether it's at a high level CEO meeting, we are not, we are turning away from parts of ourselves. Yeah. I agree. And we've had lots of conversations about this in our own work together. Um, and I and I loved our work together. I have to share that with everybody too. It leads me to um, this idea of sensitivity and the rise that I sense the rise of highly sensitive children and more sensitive adults. And I know that you would uh, share that you are a sensitive person and, and have two sensitive uh, children. And in some of our discussions, it was this idea of, you know, marketing is often perceived as being so harsh and manipulative and all these negative things, which I don't subscribe to at all. I think everything is a choice. But I remember our discussions of you are careful with the type of marketing that you invest in, that you share, but also that you are, uh, that you receive. And I'd love perhaps maybe we should just talk about sensitivity first and an increasingly sensitive world, I feel. And we can take it from there, if you like. Yes. So it was only about, I'd say, seven years ago that I realised that high sensitivity was a thing. <laughs> so yeah. I'm a highly sensitive person. Um, a psychologist called Elaine Aaron coined the phrase many years ago when she was researching um, introverts. And she realized that there was an element that was showing up that was different to being introvert, but seemed to be a particular profile of, of person. And mm. she describes it using the acronym DOES. So highly sensitive people tend to D, have uh, deeper depth of processing. They take in more information and they seem to mm. um, process it at a deeper level. E is for mm. emotional experience and empathy. So highly sensitive people tend to experience the whole range of emotions and experience them emotions very deeply. They also tend to mm. be empathetic and take on other people's mm. energy quite easily. D-O-E-S-S -S is for D-O, sorry, oh, over, overwhelm, I'm misspelling. Overwhelm is because we, the brain inf um, processes information deeply, we tend to become very overwhelmed by sensory input. It can become mm -hmm. too much and we can go into a state of overwhelm mm -hmm. very easily and become ungrounded. And then S mm -hmm. is for general sensitivity sensitivity to the environment. Mm. So when I discovered this, I felt so validated because I was one of those kids who was told, yeah. why are you so oversensitive? I grew up with a narrative about myself being relatively weak, not being able to, you know, cope emotionally in particular, 
wondering why I cried when I stepped mm. into a museum and saw a beautiful piece of art, why I mm. felt things so I could feel other people's stuff and intuit other people's stuff and carry it home with yeah. me and not be able to process it and let it stay with me. Yeah. So that's what high sensitivity is. And we know that about 20, 15 to 20% of the general population are highly sensitive and it's replicated across the animal kingdom. Wow. That's high. It's high. It's a good proportion. The hypothesis is that there is an evolutionary benefit to it because there's such a large proportion of us that have this trait. And the mm. hypothesis is because, let's say, we are hunter-gatherers on the plains of the Serengeti thousands of years ago, and there's a group of 10 of us, mm. and we're out hunting. You need at least two people in the tribe who take in inf information on a deeper level and who are scanning the horizon to watch for incoming threats. Yeah. So these guys keep the rest yeah. of the tribe safe while the tribe go and hunt whatever it is. They have a much narrower focus, you could say. Mm. So this trait has stayed with us through the millennia and it's absolutely mm. to be celebrated and honoured for many reasons. Yeah. However, in the world that we live in, that is fundamentally designed by non-highly sensitive mm -hmm. people um, who are also wonderful, mm -hmm. but may have some blind spots in terms of how a highly sensitive person experiences the world and navigates it. Because we had, some time ago, we would have heard a lot about, you know, the introvert versus extrovert um, divide in the world. And now, I think perhaps now we will start talking more about sensitivity versus not so sensitive. I don't know how to put the opposite. <laughs> yeah. And just to say that non-highly sensitive people, of course, can be sensitive too. <laughs> it's um, how beautiful that we're, that we have space now for more. Yes. And are the children, the, the younger generation are showing it to us more and more and more. Yeah. I see that. I see that all the time when I'm speaking to. To my own son, Sean, he he is more sensitive, definitely. But I think even listening to his friends, I think they are all tuned a little bit more finely um, across the board. I think that's a good way to put it. You made a decision. You you also have two children who are highly sensitive and you made a decision to choose a different type of education for them. Can you share a little with us about that? Yes. So it was again, it was like, I suppose, the entrepreneurial piece. There was always this fire inside me around education. Um, my mum was a Montessori teacher, um, so it was something that was always, there was a real focus in our house around education and child-centred education. And I suppose from working myself as a psychologist, I felt very strongly that the environment that a child enters into to learn 
needs to be deeply respectful and needs to cultivate and elicit mm. what's already inside. Mm. Rather than a sense of it being put into us, it is elicited within, from within. And that's the yeah. origin of the word educate. So we were, my, my eldest daughter had started in conventional school or sit down school, as my children call it. And mm. um, we were on the lookout for different forms of education. And a school called the Sudbury School opened, first of all, in Wicklow yeah. about six, seven years ago. And it's a democratic school. Mm. So it's a school where mm. it's about self-directed education and self-directed learning. So the student mm. enters the environment and seeks out what they wish to learn themselves. And they're facilitated by staff rather than mm. teachers. And the model is democratic. So everything is decided within the school community, which comprises the students and the staff. So everything is decided through a school meeting and everything is voted on democratically. Mm. And discipline and boundaries are also decided upon through the school community, which includes the students and the staff. So it's a rather different model of education that many of us would be familiar with. Yeah. So we decided one was opening in Sligo in 2018 and we decided to make the move from County Meath to the Northwest. Mm. So that's when I left the HSC and we packed up and we moved to the Northwest. Yeah, wow. Yeah, for the first year of Sligo Sudbury School opening. So my girls are about yeah. to go into their fifth year in Sligo Sudbury School. And it has wow. expanded. And how is it going? really well. Um, it's expanded from, there was 15 in the school initially and there'll be 90, I believe, starting in September. Mm. And it's evolving and, you know, that's what it is. It's this opportunity to evolve with some structure um, and year on year it becomes more of itself, which is decided upon by the community in and of itself. Now, I do have to say, you know, you mentioned I have a strong background in academics. Um, you know, there's a real mm. academic nerd inside me that I totally embrace. So mm. um, I have had to meet parts of myself that have freaked out around this form and model of education. Mm. So I have gone through my own process yeah. around this. But ultimately, Fanola, it's about yeah. myself and my partner being able to evidence and message to our children that we trust them and we trust them to learn and we trust them in the yeah. environment that they're in to elicit that which is within them and to seek out support if they need it. And we truly wanted them to experience what democracy actually is because look around. It's amazing. Look around. We need, we need to live and embody democracy and a sense of personal autonomy and personal responsibility more now than ever in the world that we live in. Yeah. I love it. It's a really powerful thing to 
empower children because we assume they know nothing. This is the thing. Our current educational system assumes that they have nothing, that they are, you know, empty vessels, whereas they have this enormous uh, curiosity, depth, eyes that are not coloured by what ours are coloured by. Like it's powerful stuff. And again, bravo you. (laughs) (laughs) What would you say to come back to this idea of sensitivity in marketing? um, Can you share with us how you deal with when someone is marketing to you and also when you are marketing to others like this kind of it must be challenging when you're sensitive to be you must have to be very grounded and centered to make choices about what you will do and what you will allow yourself to be exposed to. Yeah, it's true. Um, One needs to be discerning and a lot of it is around just checking in with my body. How does my body feel? Our bodies are wonderful instruments Mm. of sensitivity. So checking in, is this, as a dear friend of mine would say, is this yuck or is it yum? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Which is crude, but you know, it's helpful. And I I suppose I can sense very easily if there's something that's been thrown at me that's disingenuous in some way. Um, And I, I feel bombarded very easily. And yeah. So as a result, I do my best. Sometimes I'll just switch off. I'll walk away from it or, you know, I, I, I might return to something if I feel that maybe it is for me, but I'm, I'm still feeling a little bit undecided. And likewise, then when I needed to think about my own marketing for my own business, which um, we've had wonderful conversations about, it was the same. I needed to feel in to what felt right and true for me, which naturally was, we were a marriage made in heaven that way, Fanola, um, about truth being shared. <laughs> so I, uh, that's what I'm doing. It's like, okay, does this feel right? Yes, yes, this newsletter feels right. Yes, this is a wonderful way for me to communicate. Does this feel right? Does making reels feel right? Yeah. Yes, that does feel right. Does this feel right? No, not so much. I'm not going to do that. And, you know, it's a little bit like getting it right, getting it wrong and getting it right again. It comes back to that. And and that's what I'm doing. Yeah, I love I love this because a couple of things. One, I hope that this conversation is a message to marketers to say and to businesses to say, remember, there are 15 to 20 percent of the population who are highly sensitive keep that in mind because you don't know who in your audience is highly sensitive. And also that that's one message. And I think the other message that I'd love to get out there now in this conversation is that you get to choose how you market. Yes. And that's very powerful. Please share with everyone about your wonderful parenting programs where we can learn how to reparent ourselves 
and how they can find out more about you? So through the years of working with parents and children and families, I found that I was often using the same language and the same model um, that actually didn't seem to have a particular framework around it that would have been helpful for parents and, and families. So I developed from my love of science a pathway for parents to follow because often parents can feel quite uncontained or not sure what step to make next. So this pathway is based on um, connection, which we've been talking about, and emotional regulation. So coming back into balance again. And like what we were talking about in terms of the dance between infant and caregiver, likewise, this happens between parent and child. So the idea that first we can come home to ourselves as a parent, which means we can come back into alignment in some way and feel centred and grounded, even enough for that moment where you can stop, take a breath and say, "Okay, I have a choice here, a little bit like we were talking about. I have a choice here rather than reacting from our own patterns and getting triggered, which happens all the time. And Mm. that's okay too. And when we come home to ourselves, what we're actually doing then is we're supporting our child to learn so they can learn how to find alignment and they can learn how to regulate themselves. So that's the next step. It's guiding your child home too. So when we come home and feel regulated, Mm. our child directly experiences that themselves through resonance in the brain. It's been mapped out now. and they can begin to balance through being present with us, which is called co-regulation. And we actually learn self-regulation mm. skills through the co-regulation with the caregiver. The next step then, when we both feel relatively regulated, is work together to solve together. So that's when we can engage the brain and bring in uh, the more left side, left, left hemisphere of the brain, which is the more problem solving aspect. Often when something happens as a flare up or a storm, we want to fix it now. But we need to actually help mm. ourselves to regulate first to allow the nervous system to calm. Yeah. So then we can engage that part of our brain that helps us to problem solve and work things out together. So that's the third step. And then the fourth step is a more you know, esoteric step in a way in that when we can move through those steps and we may move through through those steps five times a day or in a much slower way over the course of a few years, we deepen trust and we grow strong and we thrive. So by co-regulating with our child, by showing our child that we can regulate, by supporting them and we trust them to regulate and we can work out things separately and together, That's how trust grows. That's how resilience grows. And that grows strength. So that's the pathway I've mapped out, which is based on empirical research and lots of experience. Mm -hmm. And I've mapped out a a course, a parent course pathway. So parents can go online. I've, my my fundamental foundational course is up, begin with you which is a, an overview of the whole pathway. And in particular, there's an emphasis on learning about reparenting and learning about how we can regulate 
ourselves as parents before we take the next steps. And I also work one-to-one with parents, which I absolutely adore. So parents can uh, engage with me, and book a session online, and we can, we can go through this process individually and taking our time with it. Wonderful. And where could they find you? juliemehan.com is my website. I'm Dr. Julie Meehan on social media, on Instagram, Facebook and on YouTube. Wonderful. Thank you so much. It has been a joy as always, Julie. Thank you. Thank you, Fanola. I hope you enjoyed that episode. And if you'd like to find out more about Dr. Julie, check her out on Julie Meehan, that's M-E-E-H-A-N dot com. And if you'd be so kind to share this episode with someone you know who would find it valuable, I would greatly appreciate it. And if you'd like to reach out to me about the podcast or anything else, connect with me on LinkedIn at linkedin.com slash in slash Fanola Howard. And I'll be back next week with another great guest. And until then, take care.